The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ivarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. While photography is often about capturing beauty, it also serves as a tool to educate and inform. It can sometimes shine a light on subject matter that many of us are not exposed to, or at least would like to think we're not touched by. The world of addiction has been explored by numerous photographers, including Larry Fink, Nan Golden, Marianne Mark, Eugene Richards, Eli Reed, and many others. And each in their own way has shown a light on the brutal price that addicts and their families face. They've also helped narrow the gap that we often believe exists between us and them. Robert LeBlanc is a young photographer who is exploring this very world focusing on the explosion of opioid addiction as found in the heart of the country. It's an issue that is impacting people of every demographic, leaving few untouched. And it's photographers like Robert who are reminding us that the scourge of addiction is an issue we all need to be concerned about. I'm such a less equipment's better anyways yeah you know when you start getting too much stuff you're just like ah oh, that's the way i am because i'm um for the trip i'm just going to be taking my x100s my fuji mm-hmm. and that's pretty much all i take i'm always thinking about oh maybe i should take my slr and you know the uh 24 to 70 uh, and then the 85 and then i start thinking i gotta carry that stuff all the time yeah and then i have to be even more vigilant about uh, carrying that stuff around, especially yeah. in restaurants, putting down the table and all, all this other stuff. Yeah. Or God forbid something happens to it, it gets stolen right. or, you know, something like that. You're just like, uh, yeah. I so I, I, even though it's not, you know, the most sophisticated camera in the world and it's like two generations old now, mm-hmm. that's all I've been taking on vacation with me for three years. And it works. And I'm, I, I'm really familiar with the camera. Yeah. So for me, the fact that I'm working with just a 35 millimeter lens equivalent mm-hmm. uh, doesn't bother me at all. No. I can make whatever I need, I need with just that, and I'm fine. Yeah. And once you get to that comfortable stage with the camera, it's that's like the sweet spot. Yeah. You know. And then you're like, all right, cool. Now it's I can just focus on make, creating images. That's yeah. like all that matters. People ask yeah. me, "You gonna upgrade? You gonna upgrade?" And I go, "Man, if I upgrade, then it's gonna be another learning curve." Yeah. Right. Because the camera, even though it's the same the same model system uh-huh. it's a new generation and it does things differently yeah and i would have that learning curve yeah i'm really trying to sort of figure it out now i don't You're have like, to I'm even here. think about it I'm, yeah, I'm, i just want to shoot I'm, I'm ready like i finally got used to this camera and everyone <laughs> has that little you know every camera even though whatever the technology is it has its own like personality to it yeah. you know and it's like you like all right i know what this camera does specifically in a certain kind of situation you're like i right. figured out the little you know little kind of tweaks about it little things so yeah because i used to be all focused on on a, i used to work for a nikon yeah. so back back in the day i had access to everything you know mm-hmm. every lens that they had autofocus lens manual focus lens even i could get a 600 if i wanted one yeah. you know <laughs> and they paid and they paid for uh, all the film and the processing cuz they encouraged you to go out there and use the equipment so that you could talk about it so it was like every weekend i was out with that gear and it was yes. like so much but now i'm the complete opposite of that right. i just go i may play with it if if there's one available i'll check it out but if i had if i had the choice of going out and shooting I'd always just go with one camera, one lens, yep, and all that other stuff. I would just sort of just forget about leave behind because yeah. I just want to focus on the moment and shooting, and not with the equipment. Because you spend more time thinking about that ever. You know, like and I will always it. be like, "Did I do this right?" Like, "Oh shoot!" Like, "Did I have this on the wrong setting?" Or yeah. what? You know, you, you just don't like, and it's just ah, oh, it's such a, a hurdle to mentally jump over when you have to focus about 
your equipment all the time and not taking a photo. Yeah. I, it's like my biggest pet peeve. You work really simply now. Yeah. Um, has that always been the case? Yeah, always. I mean, I kind of have this, <laughs> I don't know, it's almost like an OCD thing where I can't, if there's too many options, it like will overwhelm my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I could do this, but I can do this on top of this and this and this. And I end up, like I said, I just think about the equipment too much. You know, I don't really ever think about it. Just that seems to be like so overwhelming. I can't focus on taking photos. So once I get like simple point and shoot cameras or something where I I get where I just need to focus on taking the photos and not the equipment, that just seems for me, it works really great. I think that's the best for my mindset, at least. Was it also just just because it was because you came from the skating culture? It mm-hmm. was like it, it was more practical to have something small and compact with yeah, you, right? Definitely, you know, have it in my back pocket, something I can carry around. My very, I first started with a disposable camera. Right, I mean, you can't think any more simpler than that, right? And we would go out all night, all day, and I would always have this little disposable camera in my back pocket. Because you'd always come across crazy stuff throughout the whole day skating in and out the streets and what you would see. So I think that really kind of got my mindset on that because I loved it. Because all I had to do is pull it out, point it, take a photo. As simple as that. Why why the disposable camera rather than, say, the small, inexpensive digital? Uh, I just thought it was fun. I liked film, you know, and and I I like that feeling of you only have so many frames. Okay. So, you know, you got to be really that. selective with it. I've noticed that when I start shooting digital, I will shoot way too much. You know, I'll have <laughs> way too many images. And that's the one thing about film I like a lot is you have to be very selective on what you do and like really take time to like compose an image and make sure the frame is, looks good and, you know, really take your time with that. So that's definitely with film. I enjoy that a lot. And the disposable camera had that. And I was always broke. You know, I was a young kid. I wasn't really... It was more at that time, being so young, you know, it was just having a camera just to document what we we're doing, mm-hmm. you know. And then when I started getting older and after a few injuries and it was like skateboarding wasn't 100% my main focus, and it was like, okay, now I should probably get better cameras as I should start taking better photos and kind of along that line. But at that time, young, it's just as long as you had a camera, that's all that really mattered, you know. And it was really fun to drop it off and like have all your friends get the little disposable camera back yeah. and see what you had. Like it's... It was nice. Oh, that was an adventure for me. Yeah. You know, it's just like, well, I, I, in retrospect, it's an adventure. Back then, it was like, did I get it? Yeah. You know, did I get it right? Did I screw it up? Because almost inevitably, because I was using my dad's SLR, inevitably, I would make mistakes. Because most cameras are just completely manual. So it was easy to make an exposure mistake uh-huh. or something like that. And, uh, and you know, it was just such, I was always such a relief when you got the pictures back and they were decent. Oh God, it's the best. <laughs> That's, I, I always think about that. That's still one of my favorite things about film too, is the excitement. Just that whole feeling of not knowing. I mean, like, did I get it? Oh, yeah. I don't know if I did or not. And then when it, yeah, you show up and it's most half the role is garbage, but you got that one that you were really hoping. There's always in, there's always like two frames in a row where I'm like, oh, please, I hope I got this. Like, I really hope I had this frame. And then you yeah. get it back and it's like the most rewarding experience. Increasingly, I've been getting into the habit. I'm not even looking at the LCD. I may look initially during a, a day of a shoot to just to make sure that my settings are right, you know, for mm-hmm. the lighting conditions that I'm in. But once I start shooting, I try to avoid looking at the camera at all. Yeah. So that I can just because once you get into that habit of chimping. Um, almost inevitably, there's something that I lose, I miss. Yeah, oh, because every time. Just like, so I just try to go, look, I know I'm good in terms of the camera settings. Let me just stay focused on where it needs to be. Yeah. Oh, I don't know how many photos I missed by looking at the back screen of a LCD screen and being like, I spent more time like making sure everything was perfect. Yeah. And then it walked the moment passed by and you're like, ah, damn it. Like, <laughs> I can't believe it. But, and that's, that's one thing I do love about digital now is the control over the images. Like, I don't have to worry that my first shot with the digital camera is like amazingly spot on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I know in, in if for the raw format, I can bring out some stuff. I can like, you step it up a couple stops or, you know, whatever. And, it, and it, you have that control over that. So that there's a relief in that. You know, I remember first manual film camera I had, uh, I was doing all those mistakes too, you know, and a lot of, of the role will be overexposed or underexposed or something. And I've saved, 
I love how I can save images, even if I'm like flipping out my camera really quickly on the fly right. and not in a take a couple photos. And then it's like, all right, it's a little under, a little over, but like I'm able to bring that image and it's not like you completely lost that moment. You can kind of save that moment, which is really, really nice. You know, I, th- I think it's kind of interesting and I'd love for you to speak on it is, is how photographing, you know, the whole skating experience. Let's, let's talk about just the action. Yeah. Cause I think that teaches you timing. Oh, most definitely. Because uh, you're always looking for like sort of that that key moment. I mean, you all you, you do more than just photograph the stunts. You were photographing the, the culture, but I think that there's something to be said for you know coming up in a day where you're photographing something that you're immersed in, and when it comes to timing, uh, that's so key. Um, talk to me about developing your eye for that critical moment and how it's influenced everything you've done subsequently. Timing definitely with skateboarding. Like there's always a a peak of a trick, you know, there's always, you kind of build up and then there's a trick and it happens and there's like a heightened point of it. And then you have the process of coming down and landing it. Right. So that was always a challenge is like taking the photo at that pure peak of that moment of that trick where you can show, you know, just the most, the highest level, whatever you're doing, you know, whatever it's the height or like the perfect place on the grind or the perfect body position where you can see the skateboarder style. Like that was always just so key, you know, and I grew up, you know, looking at skateboard videos, skateboard magazines and all that stuff, you know, and, and that totally trained my eye on the moments I wanted to pick stuff up and see what was going on, you know, like that skateboarding completely helped create my eye for photography for sure. Definitely. You know, and, and it was great thing about it because when I lived in Montana, there wasn't much of an outlet Mm -hmm. of any of that, you know, it's pretty like stale. I mean, it's still beautiful country, right? But you see a lot of the, it's day in, day out. It's the same stuff. The same people work at the store. You see the same people every day. There's not like a lot of mix of life. So having that window into the world and seeing different cities, different cultures, like so much stuff that was huge for me. And then, yeah, and then that totally trained my eye for timing, seeing things at certain moments, you know, and just, because there's always, there's this really fun thing with skateboarding too, is there's the trick, but there's the build up before it and everybody hyping each other up and getting right. excited about it. And then the reward of somebody landing a trick and rolling away. And you get, it's like such this emotional roller coaster where, but there, every part, there's like these high peaks of it that you want to snag. And that definitely trained my eye for sure was the allure of skateboarding partly that it was such a different world from when you were experiencing montana because when i when i remember looking through like the skateboard magazines it seemed to be such a west coast Mm -hmm. thing that it was always focused on when i looked at the magazines because they were maybe i'm dating myself but those (laughs) magazines were like these gritty black and white photographs in pools and you know on the streets and stuff like that and it seemed like it seemed like a socal Experience, but um, you can tell me uh, more in terms of your perspective on it when you were taking a look at it in comparison in comparison to where you were growing up. Definitely not dating yourself. That okay. that's like still to this day you still have the grittiness, the black and white. Like that's skateboarding. Okay, yeah, that will never leave it. You know that's always been part of it, which is I think one of the purest raw thing about skateboarding is that grittiness, that edginess. Um, yeah, you have the West Coast, right? That's like your mecca of skateboarding, right? Everybody thinks LA is the birthplace for skateboarding, but you know, there's so much flavor, you know, in New York, like there's so much amazing stuff in New York and then over in Europe, like every country has its own different style of it, Mm -hmm. but it's still one unity, which is really amazing. it doesn't matter where I go. I travel. If I'm skateboarding, like I can be in another country. Like I was in, uh, Prague, and barely anybody there spoke English, all yeah. the skateboarders, but we hung out all day together skateboarding. And it was like the language, like we just knew each other just from, cause we all rode a skateboard, which was amazing, you know? Um, so I don't know if that really answers your question no, too no, much, you, but you know, that definitely like there was that LA flavor, which was really cool, you know? And it, and it really, it did speak to me a lot too, because I knew there was a bigger world out there and it exposed me to all these different cultures, you know, not only viewing things, but you have music, you know, the art, like all skate videos would have like some sort of stop motion animation, clay mm-hmm. animation, <clears throat> like these really cool, just like artsy shots that was just thrown in with the skateboarding. Cause that was part of it. You know, it was like 
there's so much of that kind of all inter intertwines with each other because every skateboarder has its own style yeah. its own kind of like flavor on how they do things you can watch someone do 10 people do the same trick and every person looks different because they have mm -hmm. their own creative way of doing it and their own way that they imagine that they do it which is pretty amazing so it definitely was from being in that kind of environment of seeing it stuff over and over in montana to seeing this this vast world of different styles and different people but we all had this one connection was definitely was pretty amazing what did your family make of what you were doing yeah, they're all right with it it was definitely like the black sheep you know they're yeah. like when are you gonna stop this silly skateboarding thing you know like everybody's so old school you know mom and pop there most people are born and raised there and they stay in montana mm -hmm. you usually work for whatever your parents were doing beforehand or you know you pretty much start a family at 21 and pretty much that's it and you've at, at that time you worked at the lumber mills Okay. You know, that was a huge kind of industry in my town was there was like three or four big sawmills and a lot of logging and stuff like that, which is crazy because I come back now, it's completely gone. They've wiped that out. And now it's almost 100% tourism. Seriously? Which is, yeah, which is really interesting because the town that I grew up is right on the border. Mm -hmm. So it really banks on a lot of Canadian tourism coming in during the summer. And it went from these these mills and these all this logging kind of go away, and now it's golf courses that are popping up in random places, and yeah. it's kind of lost some of that that heritage there, which yeah, is interesting. Yeah, I can, I can imagine because it's, it's, it's so much of people's identity is associated with what they do. Yep. And I can imagine that for generations you had you know men and women who felt like you know we make we make material that people build things with, mm -hmm. and that there's a certain sense of pride from that. And that you don't necessarily get that from being like a tourist mecca. No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, it totally, it's that trait, you know, like you get handed down from generation to generation, like how to build a house, how to farm, how to raise cattle, right. like all that stuff. And, and I was such a black sheep, like all I wanted to do was skateboard. I was like totally a city kid stuck out in the middle of the woods, you know, <laughs> it's pretty funny. And, and once I was 18, I, I bounced out, I was gone, yeah. you know, I was like, boom, in the city skateboarding, like. That's all that I cared about. But I come back, you know, 10 years later and it's, it is weird because it's kind of lost that like generation, that gift of handing it down. And, and there's still people who do it, but a lot of it, yeah, they have to turn to this tourism. You know, it's kind of more like it's now the town runs seasonally. It's like yeah. summer is the main thing. And then winter, it's really, really quiet. So what, what, what happened to your generation of, of, of the people that you grew up with, the, the, the boys and the girls that you grew up with? Did they stay there? Did they bounce or somewhere else? You know, or? it's kind of a mix. I kind of, I was always out skateboarding doing my own thing. I was one of like two skateboarders in my whole school. So I was always in my own world no matter what. Mm -hmm. So when I left, I kind of detached from everybody. But even coming back now, a lot of people left. There really wasn't much reason to stay around. You know, it's it kind of, it all started happening after I graduated and people started leaving because that's when which the mills, which was around what, 2005. That's right, okay. So it was, the mills were starting to close down then. You know, there was, and there's still some stick around. Like a lot of the forest service is pretty prevalent still. Like a lot of families will do that. Um, families who have big farms do a lot of cattle raising. Like that's, that's pretty standard. That'll be hand down. But, I don't know there's a whole lot of people from my generation, my class, that stuck around. Like, a lot of people kind of spread it out at mm -hmm. that time. And there's a few there, and they kind of just do whatever's there in the town, like, whatever's available, you know? They all started families pretty young, you know? They probably have two or three kids. Like, it's pretty, like, you know, standard small town kind of American dream, I guess you would say. And when did you start figuring out that that to maintain your, your lifestyle in this gate culture, that a camera was going to be the tool by which you could do that? I blew out my knee my second time I blew out my knee and I wasn't like ever pro status anyway I just I, st I still skateboard every day actually before I flew here this morning I was at the skate park like on my way to the airport I had to get it in like in a little bit but I knew I wasn't going to be I wasn't going to make a living skateboarding you know and so and then it kind of clicked in my head like I always took photos it was something I always enjoyed I don't know if I was amazing at it but like I enjoyed doing it and then I came across a photographer named Boogie. Boogie, yeah. Mm -hmm. And his book, It's All Good, completely changed the whole game for me. Because we would always be out, you know, seeing crazy stuff. Like, Montana, you have a lot of, like, 
meth addicts and like it's not like in the series you see a bunch of crackheads and stuff but like you'd see a lot of crazy people like tweaking at night and like mm-hmm. you'd always come across and talk to you know when i got to the city i saw a lot of homeless people i would always be out in the middle of the night talking with them hanging out i've always been a good magnet to craziness so which is always <laughs> really good and then i saw that book and i was like i see this stuff all the time and it just really like that's when the light bulb went off and i was like and i was kind of in a weird place too where i didn't really know what to do you know i was like I was, I was injured, so I had a lot of time to kind of think. I was laid out for a while, and I was like, man, what am I going to do? I don't know. Like, I had no idea, and then, as, and then I kind of like started looking at the camera, and it, it just something clicked in my head where I was like, all right, like, this is what I should have been doing. This is what I love. I just haven't really never taken it seriously because it's always been focused on skateboarding. Right. You know? And then, it's, then it was out taking photos again, full circle back on my friends out skateboarding and stuff. And then, then it was like, all right, I'm taking photos of more of the people in the street and getting their stories and like starting to kind of, it was just a spider web that just kept spreading, you know? And it was, so how'd you figure out the, the earning the money bit? Oh, I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> <laughs> you tell me, I like to figure that out myself. <laughs> That's the hardest part right yeah. there. Right. And it, I have such, I don't, I mean, I guess I would say it's like a niche style of photography. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. if you want to see this kind of grittiness, like kind of the darker corners of the city, like more of the obscure things. So, but it's been receiving pretty well. I mean, I've, I've really only been going at it maybe six years as a profession. Okay. Really, you know, really taking it seriously. So I'm probably still a young blood when it comes to a lot of other people who've been doing it for couple decades or something like that but i think there's a desire for that you know you see a lot of repetitivism in in the style of photography you know i feel like i try not to like it was just probably not the best career decision i don't have a huge social media mm-hmm. influence but like you see so much of like people's stuff and like it's such like an overload of information sometimes right, yeah that it, it will affect like the way you take photos and i feel like you kind of start to take photos of what other people are taking photos, right? It kind of has like this like chain reaction. So I think, I don't, I'm not saying like my stuff is like on this other world, different stuff, but I I think it's from my perspective of just skateboarding all the time and just kind of seeing the rawness of things. I think that, I think there's, I don't know, a market maybe for that. I don't know what you say, but people like to see that, I think. And I think with my images, there's an authenticity. There's not anything set up, you know, there's no like, pose here for me or do anything like that. Like I try to just get it when I can get it, you know, when I, when I see it. So, well, tell us about the book unlawful behavior, unlawful conduct, unlawful Mm -hmm. conduct. That was about six years of photos all out when we're out skateboarding. Most of it, there's a few here and there that are kind of mixed in, but it was all mixture of LA, Seattle, Berlin, uh, Czech Republic and Poland. And then a little bit of Montana mixed in with it too. Okay. But yeah, it was just kind of, this body of work I had, I had it going for, you know, six years or so. And, you know, I was, I really wanted to put it out and it, it was kind of in a time too, where I was getting ready to jump over into the digital. I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to take this leap from doing film. Cause it was just so expensive for me at the mm-hmm. time. And it was just like, I had to choose between, am I going to eat food tonight or am I going to get all this film <laughs> developed? I have one of the options, you know? And so I really wanted to put together a book of all this film all shot on this little point and shoot camera I always had around with me all the time. And then kind of a mix of like, I did a lot of film with graffiti and a lot of that kind of culture too. So it was like a lot of this kind of mixed media along with it. And it was just like something I really wanted to put out and I was pretty happy with it. It turned out pretty good. I had a really great response from it. So, yeah. Uh, but one, I think one of the things that's always difficult is when you've been shooting a while and you've accumulated a bunch of work, one is kind of figure out what you're going to do with it. Yeah. Definitely. But then it's the other part is editing it down to the point that it's a manageable body of work, oh, whether God. it's a book or whether it's an exhibition. Yeah. And especially with film, man, you, you, it's not like you, you can easily browse through all that stuff on a computer. Um, did you have to just go through thousands and thousands of prints, contact sheets? How did you how did you filter through all that stuff to figure out which ones would end up in the book? Well, with my OCD ish, I I planned for this ahead of time, and every time I developed film, I would get high res scans of it. Oh, so smart. no matter what, I would always have a digital selection to choose from, because I didn't have access to a dark room or have the money for 
to do a bunch of prints and figure out mm-hmm. and look. So I would always get the film developed and have my negatives. So in case I ever wanted to do bigger prints or whatnot, I'd have that. But I'd always have high res scans with it. And then I would just compulsively organize them. So thank God when I got down to actually doing the book, I kind of had it like, here's all my photos from Germany. Here's all my photos from LA. And so that was nice. Okay. That made it a lot less painful, but still it was like whittling it down to 150 pages. It's just like, you know, so much to do. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's killing you. You got to like start putting photos on the cutting room floor, you know? And you're like, like, I don't want to give this one up, but you're like, it's not, it's not a banger. So like, I don't, Mm -hmm. I want to have to do it. So that took me a while. Definitely like getting it down to it. So, but you know, that's you have to fine tune it. Tell me the whole idea behind the the book because the title is very evocative, right? Well, I think it's it's that that kind of unlawful conduct, like that that part of society that people don't don't really appreciate, mm -hmm. you know, or don't look frown upon. You know, with skateboarding, you always get a lot of shit, no matter what. If you're if you're getting kicked off spots or mm-hmm. people calling the cops or cops don't like you because they think you're just a hoodlum. You know, I always get to see that was a kid. Everybody was like skateboarders or nothing. And yeah. this was dating myself because now it's pretty accepted, you know, and now it's pretty much a home sport. But when, you know, when I was younger, it was, everybody's like, oh, you guys are nothing but troublemakers. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that has a part of it to it. And then it, you know, and then it goes into the graffiti part of it which is also, you know, its own beast in itself. And then kind of just like that part of that lifestyle, mm-hmm. you know, of what people would cons- consider as unlawful conduct in a sense. So I feel like the that name suited kind of that whole body of work pretty right. well. You know, like it kind of just showed that kind of, you know, rule-breaking side of people. Did you find that because you were part of that culture and because people were accustomed to you and your camera, that you didn't have to sort of filter yourself in terms of what you chose to shoot or didn't shoot? Yes, for sure. It was nice. I don't think I would have got a lot of photos if I wasn't in the mix with all that. Mm-hmm. You know, like I definitely was able to gain trust with some people, especially with like graffiti and all that. Like a lot <clears throat> a lot of people who are in the graph skateboard, it almost goes hand in hand okay. in itself, you know? So like definitely I was able to get kind of in with that a little bit. And the cool thing about skateboarding is you kind of can just cruise through most neighborhoods like even if it's like somewhat of a rougher neighborhood mm-hmm. like everybody just kind of it's like whatever some kid skating like he's just you know doing his thing so that really made it possible for me to get into certain places and take photos of certain things i think if i was just walking around with a camera right everybody would have been like no get out of here like we don't want to you know belong here but i think because i had a skateboard and that would be such an icebreaker, you know, like talking with people, watching a skateboard, kind of out and about. Like I probably wouldn't even be out in the middle of the night in the city, you know, two in the morning if I wasn't yeah. out skateboarding, you know what I mean? So it definitely, being in the mix of that made it a lot easier to be able to get that, that kind of content. Were, were there any things that you had to do differently when you started going to, you know, other countries, you know, in, in Europe? Because even though you had that thing in common, you're still dealing with a different set of people, uh, different culture, different, you know, ways of speaking and approaching things. Um, when can you give me an example of when you had to sort of figure it out, even though you had this thing in common? Well, skateboarding, man, it was like that golden link. It was really? pretty amazing. Yeah. It's it. And it's funny in Europe, there wasn't as, in some, depending on what countries, like I, we spent a lot of time on like the Easter block. I like went to Bulgaria, and stuff like that too. And they just didn't see a whole lot of just people skating through the streets. I know it's there, but I was surprised. Like a lot of people would stop and stare at you and be like, well, there's Americans skating here. So that was really nice. That was like such an icebreaker, you know? And then I I was lucky. I knew a few people over there. So they introduced us to some groups of people, you know, especially with the graffiti part of it. Like they're like, Hey, these guys right here, like you can come hang out with them. They'll show you around. And I don't know. It's, it's kind of this connection with the culture, you know, and people really love like, you know, graffiti and skateboarding. It started in America. That's like an American culture thing, you know? So a lot of people are really, they want to talk to you. They're like, they're like, you know, they're very intrigued by it. They're like, Oh, you do this. You're from America. Like I remember people in Bulgaria being like, why would you come here? They're like, you're from LA. Like there's no reason you should be here in Bulgaria. And you're like, no, this place is amazing. Like, I, I don't can't believe more people don't come here. This is insane. Yeah. And so you kind of had that, 
that respect for each other, which was really nice. And that made it really easy. You know, I met the first night when I was in Bulgaria, I was hanging out with this kid. It was, he was really wild. I kind of find out he was part of like the white supremacist group that's over in Bulgaria. And there's quite a big, like I noticed that there's quite a big of, of, of that kind of culture over there. And we were talking and if it wasn't for like skateboarding and just that he invented, mm-hmm. he like invited me over to a dinner. They call it church, which was like a dinner they'd have once a week with all the members, and it, and that all spawned from skateboarding. Wow, it was pretty wild. Like I've been introduced to so much different stuff just because of me cruising around the city with my skateboard. Did you photograph some of that stuff? A little bit, yeah, yeah. There's a photo I have. Um, it didn't make the book because I ended up getting that film developed after I put out the book. Okay, but there's a there's a really crazy photo of a guy showing me a tattoo and he has a Ku Klux Klan member with a white cross burning on like a back of his shoulder. And then the other one is a big badge of one of the Nazi German, like one of their generals. Yeah. It was just wild. I've never experienced anything like that before, you know? And it was just, it was so, so weird. Yeah. Especially was, coming from a town in Montana. Yeah. Right. You know, it's, which is pretty homogeneous and yeah. all of a sudden it's just like, Whoa. Yeah. It was crazy. And yeah. they're like, and it, I have tattoos too. So that helped out. They're like, Oh, you have tattoos. Let me show you yours. And I like explained to him like, Oh, these photos mean this and this. Yeah. He's like, check out mine. And I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> like, Oh man, you're like on, this is a whole nother level. I don't even know what to say about this right now, but they're really cool. It's like, you want to take a photo of it? And I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of wild. Did, how, how did the traveling and going out to all these different countries and having all these experiences start developing what you're doing with the camera? Um, I love people. I think most photographers do. Like we have this a fascination with the human race and like how people are. So growing up in a small town and knowing like there's such a huge world out here. You know, there's so much more to see. And then seeing that through skate videos and watching people like big tours over through Europe and all this stuff. And it's like, Oh wow. Like I want to see all this. And really it's all like, I want to skateboard here. Mm-hmm. That okay. was, you know, that was like, I want to go over to Europe. Cause I grew up as a kid seeing all these guys skate, all this like beautiful granite and marble and like all these, through these old cities. It's like, I want to go out there. So by the time I was old enough to actually like afford to do it, like that's when I had my camera with me too. So it was like this perfect like combination of both of them. And I loved it. You know, it's just so much culture, so much different people. Like it just, it just was like, ah, oh, I can't get enough of it. I need yeah. more and more and more of it. So, so that was, that was amazing. And I think whenever you're in a situation like that, you just want to take photos because it's so new and fresh, right? Yeah. You know, it's just like, oh, everything is so different. It's the same, but it's different. It's so cool. So seeing that, and then there's no better way to see a city except for skateboarding through it. You take so much random little cuts, little streets, little things everywhere. So you, it's like riding a bike through a city, but fun because you get to do tricks, mm-hmm. which is even better. But you, you, know, you see all these like little corners and cuts and things you would never see before. So I think all together just was just fueled the fire to see more of that and more of that. And then when you start to see different cultures and different people and see how they do things, like you want to document that, mm-hmm. right? And you want to show it the way that it is in its purest form. So every time it was a new country, it just kept fetting the fire to like, all right, what's the next country I'm going to go to the next place, like planning the trip before you even leave your, the trip you're on right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when did you start realizing that the kind of photography you wanted to, to practice was documentary photography and that documentary photography had, there was a legacy that was, that was something that was actually sort of practiced that it wasn't just, snapping pictures in the way you had originally done that there was a whole history behind approaching photography in that way when did that start clicking and and changing what you were doing i think it was a culmination of when i first saw boogie's book Mm -hmm. like that definitely like put my mind to like oh wow like i always enjoyed doing it i mean to me photography like i i was doing commercial stuff for a while and was kind of mixed in with like when i was in la doing some of the like the hollywood movie stuff and Mm -hmm. advertisement and it's, that's great. Like, that's really cool. I like being able to like set up your own, like create an image from your mind. You know, that's really neat. But to me, it was the authenticity of the moment. Like that was, that like really, really got to me. So 
I guess naturally I wanted that. And then when I started looking into more photographers and like, you know, looking at Eugene Smith and, you know, Boogie and I think Sam Abel is, I think that's label. God, his stuff is unbelievable, Mm -hmm. you know? And then you're like, and then they want to tell the story for it. You know, like that's so important. And then you just start doing all your research. And there was another really important photo with, um, I saw when I was younger was, uh, Martin Luther King during one of his speeches. And it's a photo from behind, from the back of his head. Right. And he's talking to the whole crowd. And I remember just being like, I want to take photos of stuff that actually mean something. You know, mm-hmm. like moments in time that like we need to remember and moments that need to be documented. Not to, bu- not to sell a product or to promote something, but like when I'm gone, I want my photos to be there to show parts of history, part of culture, mm-hmm. you know, the world that, you know, next generations can look upon and, and, and see what it was like. I thought that to me, that yeah. really held a lot of weight on my shoulders. And you know, I think unlawful conduct too, was a way to kind of get the, almost the funness out of it. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like, I was just so caught up in like all the craziness and I was really trying to learn how to master my craft a little bit. But like, once I put that body of workout, it's like, all right, now you're going to focus on like more social subjects, yeah. things that are a little bit more important. Like right now in Montana, I'm doing a project on the meth epidemic that's going on there. Mm-hmm. You know that, and it kind of just spawned for me being there, but I noticed like how much of that's affecting, you know, the state and the country in whole, you know, like I think there's a huge amount of children in foster care are taken yeah. away from families that have meth related majority. A lot of people in prison in Montana were under the influence of meth or meth related court systems are overwhelmed with these meth problems. I mean, the using is through the roof and now you have the Mexican cartel coming in, bringing the purest form of meth they've ever seen. It's not this mom and pop like cooking in a, Mm -hmm. in a house. Like this is like super lab, really, really clean, pure stuff. So I think I kind of got that out of my system of just like that subculture. And I still always love it. I mean, obviously I'm part of it, but it was like, all right, cool. I was able to do something. I want to say like homage, but something to that lifestyle, to, to those, to that culture that really made me who I am today. Like Mm -hmm. I always say this is the day skateboarding saved my life. If it wasn't for skateboarding, I don't know who I would be or what I would have done, but I felt it was such a release once I got that out of the way. And now it's like, okay, now I'm going to tell stories. I'm going to document things that not only have to just do with the subculture, but affect people as a whole. Yeah. And then that kind of like spawned out to who are these other documentary photographers? Who are these other people who have been really big influences in, you know, what was important in our history? So, so, so tell me more about the, the, you know, this focus on the, the whole culture around the meth. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you sort of get into that world, gain people's trust? You know, because people... When you're in the drug culture, it's paranoid. But when you're on meth, it's a whole. It's a whole. Yeah. You know, and I, I was I was thinking about that. I used to be an addict. I used to drink a lot. I'm sober now, mm-hmm. so I can relate to a lot of people. Like I've been through treatment. I've been through that process. So like I can really get down on the level with some people like that, and mm-hmm. I can really kind of speak their language a little bit. And then it was just like the mix of being out with just you know the craziness in the city at night. You know, like talking to people who are out on the streets from using drugs and everything. So like you have that connection and you know how to kind of guide yourself through that situation. Mm -hmm. But yeah, meth is on a whole nother level. Like the paranoia, like that whole thing is crazy. But what I've noticed is there's not really any outlets for that. Um, It's kind of the news is this is super evil. The people who use these drugs are really evil Mm -hmm. and it's all bad, which isn't the case. Yes, it does make you crazy. It does do a lot of really insane stuff. But a lot of these people don't have anywhere to go to. Like, there's nowhere for them to, like, there's no hotline to call. Right. I'm talking to a guy right now in Montana. We're trying to start, like, like a suicide hotline, but something for meth. Where it's just, like, they need to talk, like, get this stuff out. So when I started this project, I've had so many people reach out, being like, this drug ruined my life, but I really want to tell the story to help other people down the road. Mm-hmm. You know, I talked to this lady, amazing story, but she was a nurse at a hospital, completely like went down. You know, she has these huge scars up and down herself from stabbing herself. She used to shoot bleach underneath her skin because mm-hmm. she thought there was bugs. And it's like this insane story, right? Like something that none of us, most people don't ever experience. And it's really 
it, it's a tough story to share, but her main thing is like, if I can save someone's life from this, I want to do that. So the outpour of people who have been using and who have been through prison, lost their children, lost their, their sons, you know, everything, like they really want this to happen. So that was amazing to me. I wasn't expecting that. So that's really made it help out a lot, you know, with that whole process. Yeah, I think, I think this particular epidemic is affecting people all over the country, all over the world. Yeah. People who normally would never think they would ever have someone in, in their family or, 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 or friend who was addicted. And to see that sort of devastation makes you realize that it's not just bad people who do bad things. Yeah. These are good people who, because either of ment- because of mental health issues and self-medicating, or because they became addicted because of prescription drugs and then, which weren't available to them, and then they start self-medicating using meth. Mm-hmm. Um, both stories of which I am, you know, I have family and friends who have been impacted because of either path to it. But it's it's there's something that um, opens people's eyes to to it um, that doesn't allow them to be as judgmental. Mm-hmm. And I think images like yours really kind of demonstrate not just sort of the visual nastiness of what that addiction can take can take people to, but allows you to sort of have a degree of empathy for yeah. the kind of desperation that's involved, you know, with it. I think that people just lose sight of that. Yeah. And just think, oh, just stop using the drug. Just say no, right? And yeah. it's just like, uh, that's <laughs> right. not it. Oh, thank you. Because I think that's what I really try to show a lot too. I have, a, I, I have this thing where I don't like to show a lot of people's faces in my images mm-hmm. because I want you to be able to picture yourself in that situation. And I think when a viewer can, instead of just looking at somebody who's in a really low part, but they can, without a face, you can almost like imagine that you're that person. Right. And I think that brings out some of that empathy that you need. You know, it kind of almost, you almost levels you down with that person and, and understand that they're a human being too. They're not, like you said, it's like they're good people who have just been taken over by a really bad monster and they need, and a lot of people just need help and they need just someone to be there to listen to them and tell their story and, and, and let it be told. And instead of them just automatically being these social outcasts that are forgotten about, right. you know, I think that's one of the almost the, one of the most worst thing we can do for people who are in need of help is to push them away. Because when you get to this feeling of hopelessness and a feeling of no one cares about me, that's like when you really go down and hit rock bottom. So, so talk to me about that when that happened to you. When you got sober. Um, I was just just drinking, man. I just drinking is an evil thing, <laughs> you know. To some people, some people can have great control over it, and to me, it wasn't. You know, I would drink a lot and just become out of control. You know, be out of my body and just be ridiculous. Get just be belligerent. You know, and, and you wake up and you're like, that's not me. And I think there's just a certain point where I'm lucky enough where I realized, hey, it's, it's going to go one or two ways. A, you're just going to go downhill quick and you're going to lose everything. Or you need to kick it and clean up and take control of your life. You know, and there was a moment where I got arrested. I'm sitting in jail and looking and thinking, I might not have bail. I might not get out of here. I could be wearing this orange jumpsuit for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of have to, you know, you have to make that decision where it's, you pick one or the other. You keep living that lifestyle, which we all know it's going to go one way or another, or you clean up and get your shit together and, (laughs) and like pull it out of it. So luckily I was able to do that. You know, a lot of people have a hard time with it. I'm pretty stubborn. So once I get my mindset on one thing or the other, so it's almost like I, I flipped that like stubborn drunkenness into like stubborn soberness, okay. <laughs> which, which worked out pretty well. But, you know, had you tried to get clean one. before, you know, no, I, I was always just in denial. Hmm. I wasn't much of like every day in and out, in and out, in and out. But like when I would drink, I just couldn't stop. Yeah. And I, and I, I was lucky, you know, I was lucky enough where I probably skipped death a few times. I've been lucky. Like it flew right by me, you know, and, and, I kind of knew it in the back of my head that I need to slow down, need to slow down. And then when I got in trouble and it was serious, it was like, okay, 
Like you, this is, you need to do it now. And there's no other thing. And I'm lucky because I talked to a lot of people in treatment and a lot of people who are in AA and they're like, you're lucky that you figured this out at your age. You know, it was probably another 20 years till I was, I lost everything, you know, and I've put everything in the photography, you know, like everything in my life, I've passed out a lot of quote unquote, like life opportunities. You know, if you just get the career, play, play by the rules, whatever. So to think I would throw all that sacrifice away to have a drink, it just didn't, it just, to a certain point, it was like, this isn't worth it. Like you've already sacrificed so much. Like you can do, you have a tool where you can help people out and you're just throwing it away because you're self abusing yourself. It's just, and, but you know, addiction is a crazy thing like that. Like, you're in denial and I, and I hear that from a lot of people even with this meth project it's like they'll have a lot of excuses for why they did it you know and it's it is it's a mind mess her up I mean you really you'll you'll come up with all these excuses and woe is me and yada 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 and yeah. like and really it's just like alright it's it just you had to hit a crossroad and you make a decision on what you're gonna do you know and I'm, I'm lucky I have a very supportive family I have friends who are very supportive so making that transition wasn't too difficult. You know, like everybody was like, all right, like we're really proud of you for doing that. So I think a lot of those things played a a big role in being able to change that over in my life. I know that the drug culture has been photographed a lot going back decades. Mm -hmm. And when I imagine most of the photographers who who I've known who have photographed that world, they themselves have not been addicts or at least active addicts when they've photographed it and i think that that's allowed a certain level of objectivity yeah between themselves and the people that they're photographing but i wonder for someone who has been um in your case an alcoholic but an addict nevertheless yeah and has gone through that whole process of being in denial of going through the struggles of getting it and staying sober how does that sort of color how you approach and photograph these people who are at different stages that you once were in. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I think, I, I think that's where the compassion comes in. You know, I think that's really, I think I can look, I don't look at people as like, oh, this is a crazy photo of somebody like really screwed up. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, the objectivity of a sense where it's like, oh, that's just like craziness. Right. You know, it's like, you want to, there's a beautiful person there no matter how messed up they are or how bad the situation is, you know, there's, there's still a beautiful person there who, you know, it's a human being there and they're having a rough time. So I've learned, so I have that view when I take an image, of course, but then there's the other side of me that wants to show people, Hey, this could be like, you're walking down that path too, you know, and hopefully maybe someone sees an image and there's a photo, uh, right now on my website of a friend of mine who, I've been friends forever and I watched him really kind of spin down the whole heroin and I have a photo of him smoking heroin and it's just like, it's so heavy in a sense. You can't really see him, but you see his hands and you just see like the dirt and the, mm-hmm. the scars and just like the lack of like letting yourself go, you know? And if that photo, someone can seize it and like look at themselves in the mirror real quick and be like, I don't want to be down that path or something like that always is a part of when I take photos too, when I, when I see people like that. Yeah. So I think that combination and just the share, like the, the camera can be such a powerful tool to s- start a conversation with somebody to really connect with them, mm-hmm. you know, just be like, Hey, like, how'd you get here? What's going on with this? Like right. I'm passing no judgment, you know, you do your thing, but you know, this is what I see. And this is what the camera tells because the camera doesn't lie. You know, like, this is really how it is. And, like, you might, your addiction might kind of have that mask over you, and you might be like, oh, I got a couple more years. I got a couple more years. It's like, you don't have a couple yeah. more years. Like, you have a couple months, my guy. And that's about it, yeah. you know? So I think when you, when people see that and you can engage that conversation, and then there's a the whole aspect of being an outcast, right? I've, especially in the city. I mean, even for me, I felt like so alone. It's just the weirdest concept of being in a massive city like LA and you feel so alone, right? So I couldn't imagine of being out there and really needing it, like kind of just like to the point where you are rock bottom and you're asking for people to help you and people just stepping over you every day. Like someone stopping and wanting to take your photo and just talk to you for a second, Mm -hmm. that could change somebody. 
like drastically. It's yeah. as simple of an action of kindness like that. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of to it besides, you know, you're right. A lot of people have this objectivity of just like, let me take a, an edgy photo of someone right. getting high. And it's like, there's so many layers to that situation that needs to be appreciated. Yeah, but you have to be careful in this because, yeah, at least with with, I'm more familiar with meth than probably heroin because of the, the people in, in my life. And there's this thing, um, drug induced psychosis, yeah. where you know where people become psychotic, uh, almost they could be diagnosed as being schizophrenic, mm-hmm. which makes them completely unpredictable. They can be fine one moment and then the next moment they're just out of their mind. Yeah, and and dealing with somebody like that is like. It's scary, <laughs> but but it, but you know, it could also be incredibly dangerous. So, um, how do you sort of gauge when it's good to stay in to make the photographs, and when you need to say, uh, "I need to get out of this situation because it might turn really bad really fast." You gotta listen to your gut. You know, that's luckily again full circle back to skateboarding. Like you get in such hairy situations, like you know, like I gotta get out of here. Like, this is that moment where up. Oh, it went from being kind of crazy to this is borderline scary. Mm-hmm. And you just have a little bit of street smarts and be able to read and be very, very aware of your environment. And like, how do I get out of here? Like kind of scope that when you go in an area, like what's my way out? Like watch the ticks on people. Like some people will just flip like that and you can see it in their eyes, see it in their body language real quickly. Can you give me an example? Um, I had a friend, we went to go meet some kids to go skateboard and I get around the corner and one of the kids is overdosing on heroin. He's, mm-hmm. he's out. I mean, he's pretty much dead for the most part. And here's all these guys standing there like, what, do, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And if, you know, I'm like, call the ambulance. I call the ambulance to make sure they're there. Like he technically died for about, they said a couple minutes until they revived him. And I, I you know, I approach him like, what, what is going on? Like, why didn't you guys call the, somebody like and then you can see like in their eyes they just turn like don't blame me for this like this isn't my fault and you can just see like the tension just like rise and Mm -hmm. just be like went from freak out to complete defense and that that's the thing i pay attention to a lot when people become very defensive really quickly okay because it's like you you struck a chord and they were getting really aggressive and i'm like i gotta go you know like all right cool i'm gonna go i'm gonna go to the store and grab something for you guys like I'll be a second and then just bounce mm-hmm. just get yourself out of that situation as fast as you can, you know, because I mean, that's definitely one of them. Um, I just can't really think of a lot on top of my head, but no, yeah, that's a good, that's, that's, that's a spot on, uh, uh example yeah. because that defensiveness that, that I think about it. Yeah. That's a big, big trigger. Cause it's just like, they feel vulnerable. And yeah. as a result, the way they react oftentimes is with anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they started, they lied about it. They're like, they're like, we're not high. I'm like, yeah, right. Okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, and then the paramedic comes and he's looking at all our eyes and he's like, looks at me, he's like, you're not high. And he looks at two of them and calls them straight out. He's like, mm-hmm. you guys are both doped up. And then they're like, to just run away. Yeah. And so that's like when I follow them and like, because I'm like, all right, he's okay. Paramedics are there. They're going to take him to the hospital. Like, I got to watch out for these two guys too and make sure nothing gets crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's like they hit that point of vulnerability. We're like, oh, I got caught out on my shit. Like, now he knows I'm high. I got caught in a lie. We just gave our friend bad dope. Mm-hmm. Like, the drug dealer, ran, a couple of people just ran off and left them there for dead. Yeah. And you're calling them out. Like, what, what are you doing? Why is this happening? And then it's just like that defensive switch. You can see it in their eyes. Like, it goes straight from scared to rage. And you're like, all right, you are out of your mind right now you're scared, you're angry, like you have this huge rush of emotion and it's just like, I gotta go. You know, you just gotta, like, all right, cool, like, I, I'm gonna go grab something to drink, I'll be right back and yeah. just get out of there, <laughs> you know? So what do you, what do you do to sort of keep your equilibrium? <laughs> you know, because you're seeing some really sort of dark stuff and can be very depressing and, you know, and considering that you're, you know, you, you want to stay sober yourself, how do you sort of strike uh, strike the balance between, you know, going in de- going in deep in order to get the pictures that you want, being immersed in these people's lives, yet coming up for air and be able to take care of yourself? It's a tough one. It's a hard a hard thing to balance. Um, I think being on that side and then being on the other side it makes you appreciate one or the other, and you just got to keep yourself in check all the time. You know, you need to know 
when, Hey, I need to, I need to not be around this. And you're like, all right, cool. I feel comfortable with this. It's good to have people who you support you, you know, like I won't always go out by myself. You know, I'll have friends with me who are pretty level-headed who mm-hmm. are, can pull themselves together and be like, Hey, we need to go or whatever, you know, have somebody with you as a major you know, just to kind of put yourself in check too. Right. Cause I think when you're by yourself and you have all this craziness going around you, like it's easy just to be like kind of engulfed by it. And if you got someone to tap on your shoulder and be like, all right, this is, this is probably time to go or right. time to get out of here. Like that's a huge one. So that, and I think just, you know, I keep thinking about like when I was in jail and counting every brick in that cell, I mean like, I can't ever put myself in this situation again. You know, like you got to get out of this. Mm -hmm. Like it's just that, that image always sticks with me, you know, being in there and just reminding myself that it's like, you can't be in this situation again. Like you got to get out of this and not be like that. So do cops sometimes confront you and ask you what the hell are you doing? Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, it's a touchy thing to, to be with, you know, it's like you're involved, but you're not involved. Like, why are you here? But usually Surprisingly enough, the cops don't really get involved with it too much. Mm-hmm. They're always so slow with anything. You know, <laughs> I don't want to say anything bad, but usually, like it, it happens, and then the cops come like ten minutes later or something like mm-hmm. that. So, like, they're never really there through the most of it, you know. And with the friend, with my friend overdosing, it was like I called you guys. Like I came up on this, I called you, and they can tell. You know, they, they, mm-hmm. these guys are they know they understand when someone's filling them full of crap or they're actually telling the truth and they're genuine, you know? So it's like, you can just be honest with them. And when, if a situation gets like that kind of sticky and they, they kind of have a good idea. Addicts are not the most adept liars. No, no, not at all. (laughs) I was, I was out with the border patrol agents up in Montana uh, a few weeks ago and I was talking to them about it and they're like, you know, people give themselves away so quickly. Like it's almost all the time. Like they will just be like, I can tell something's out of place because people will just give themselves away all the time, <laughs> you know? So I think that kind of plays in police usually understand that or yeah. medics or whatever the situation is. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I'm going to cheat. Okay. <laughs> would be the first. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm going to say a group of people because if it wasn't for my group of friends, like we kind of all started doing this together and like really pushing each other. And I think if we weren't pushing each other through all this, then I don't think we'd be where we're at and so hungry. And I think my friends are extremely talented for what they do. So I have a friend, Yuta Karita, who's an amazing photographer, a fashion photographer, and he's just unbelievable um a friend drew kessler and ben scott Arzano and uh, christopher williams those four guys like they together like everybody has their own talent yeah. and they're really good at what they do but i think those guys need a lot of shine because they're really really amazing talented people and they're gonna have to do a lot of really great things coming well, up in the well, you are doing some great things and i really am glad to have had the chance to to meet you and I'm really looking forward to what the future holds for you because I think you're going to do some amazing things. So. Thank you. Well, it's it's an honor. You have the show is amazing. Like I've learned, like literally, from someone who's just kind of bootstrapped this and done that on their own. I've learned so much from your show. Like I think so, it's like almost school in itself. Oh, so much knowledge that everybody says. So you're doing a really good thing for photography, and I hope you do a lot more of it. For thank sure. You, man. Thanks again for joining us and to Robert for sharing his time with us. To find out more about Robert and his work, visit photosbyrobertleblanc.com. And thanks to you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations like the one you heard today. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and the candid frame website. Or if you just want to make a one time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on the donate button on the candid frame website or the show notes. Thanks to Levin Dixon and Primordial Creative for their recent contributions. It makes a difference. Thank you so much. 
To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candor Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we present here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbadianX. And this is IbadianX, and this is The Candid Frame.